world is not as it should be seems like something obvious to say. The world is not as it should be. Now, we have the benefit, I think, of living our lives in, in, in North America, particularly thinking that the world that is as it should be most of the time, right? Our, our trust in that things are the way that they should be is more likely shattered than it is prevalent to us all the time. I mean, and there are places that you would think that throughout the world there, there isn't just um, sadness, right? But there are, there are times when that is shattered. And there are times where we see clearly that the world isn't as it should be. That there's, there's hungry, that there's anguish, that there's death, that there's our own suffering. There's, and, and for everybody, there's the deterioration called aging, um, which I think, yeah, David, not with you though. Everybody except for David. Um, but uh, but that, that thing that sort of lives with us that says that our time is passing as well. And so we have this ways in which we see the world isn't as it should be. Now what we're doing, and we've been doing for the past two weeks, and we're going to do for the next uh, four weeks after this, is we're walking through some sort of disciplines in which we can presence Christ to the world. That as disciples caught up in the good news of the Easter joy, caught up in the, in, the, in the news that the world can never be the same after what God's done in his resurrection, of raising Jesus from the dead. As we are caught up in that, we've, we've been given these things through, through Jesus and through the wisdom of the ages to sort of practice in the world. But one of the things that we haven't quite talked about, how each one of them sort of will name that the world isn't as it should be. The first one was the Lord's table. In a world of, of divided tables, in a world of, of hunger, in a world, I mean, the scene we looked at was the people who are following Jesus sitting out on the plain, and they're hungry, and, dis, and the disciples' response is, send them away to go get something to eat. It's kind of our response to overwhelming concerns in the world when things aren't going right. Well, if we could just send all of them away, you've seen this in the, in the Glenwood paper around the homeless, which I don't have an obvious solution to fix homelessness, but, but one of them that seems to come from everybody else is, well, if we could just send all of them away, that would fix homelessness in the valley. Well, that's not a very easy or obvious, or it doesn't really actually fix the solution of not having homes. But what Jesus says is what you have to give is enough. And so give that out amongst this place. And so in that scene in the Gospel of, of Mark is that they actually presence sort of Jesus to the world. They're sort of the hosts of that table. Last Sunday, perhaps the most obvious one is that David talked about his reconciliation. You don't have to be alive a long time to see divide in families, to see divide in homes, to see divide in the world. You just pick up the paper. Uh, I get the, only the Saturday paper which is about the amount of overwhelming unreconciliation you can handle if you think about it that way. There's so much division and anger. Not only that, I get the Wall Street Journal, so I get that even businesses are divided in that way, that, that there is unreconciliation even in that world. The business section, you would be like, there must be good news here, right? It's like this executive is firing that executive and this and that. And it's like, it just penetrates everything. And so what David read for us last week was from that, that line from the Apostle Paul is that in Christ we become ambassadors of Christ's reconciliation. That in a world that's divided, 
than a world that stands apart, oftentimes divided between, from whatever you want to say, right and left, right and wrong, um, uh, ethnic divisions, violence that sort of overflows, that Christ's disciples are meant to be ambassadors of his reconciliation. It's another way we presence Christ to the world. This Sunday, if you're following along in the book that we sort of handed out, is proclaiming the gospel. It doesn't seem like that's quite as clear as the others, on that the world isn't as it should be. But I think if we were going to go back to some of the root concerns, you could almost have put this one first. Actually, the last one is kingdom prayer. That one probably could have been first. Praying the Lord's Prayer probably should have been first, and even the author says that. But if you do that one first... Books build. Books go towards an ending. So he put that at the end. But this one could go next in that this is where we begin to proclaim that God has done something amazing through Jesus Christ and through his history with Israel. That's this blessing that's supposed to be a blessing for others. That's this way of putting creation and world back together in this way that we've torn it down. That it proclaims this news to us. I love what the Apostle Paul says in this First Corinthians section is that what he has received, he's passed on. So much of what we do as Christians is received and then passed on. There isn't a whole lot as much as we'd like to think. I mean, when you rebel against your home church, which my generation has pretty much perfected, is that like, oh, my parents' Christianity, this is supposed to be like convicting for myself, and kind of a joke, but that's the way it is is that we rebel against sort of our home places sometimes. And so we think there's a place where we can go where we haven't, something hasn't been received and then passed on. All the gospel is received and then passed on. And Paul talks about this, that he's received this and he's passing it on. One of the messages I say all the time, but I'll never get sick of saying it, is that Christianity is contact before it's advice. It's news before it's, it's this thing that you should do. It's the news that God has broadcast into the world, that, that God is busy reconciling and putting things back to right, and he's inviting us into that. That God is doing this movement of recreation. In so much of Christianity, we get first as advice. Well, first you should clean up and do this. First you should follow this. You know, you're not ready for this yet. But really what we miss is so much of what that God has come to us in Jesus Christ. It's nothing of our own doing. It's nothing we could have created or come up all by ourselves. But happens because God has come near to us. And what Paul says is that he's received this gospel, and he defines it in this great way, is that he's received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now this moment, scriptures is the Old Testament. Paul, Paul didn't have any of the Gospels. He mainly had oral tradition. Whatever Gospel he might have had would have been probably what later makes up the Gospel of Mark. Um, but more likely, he's heard all these stories. But when he says, according to the Scriptures, he means according to the promises that God gave to Israel. When Paul calls himself chief among sinners, by the way, big side note, he's actually saying that I'm the one who should have known this that I'm actually the greatest sinner because before me were these mysteries that are being proclaimed through Jesus Christ, and I actually sought to extinguish them. Betrayal like that is what makes him the greatest sinner. So we think like, 
oh yeah, we're all the greatest sinners because we, we curse or we do this or whatever our sin might be. But what Paul's actually saying is, I knew from the scriptures that God should have been doing this. And when I first heard of it, my initial response was to kill it and to squash it. So he says that according to the scriptures, the promises that were given in Israel, that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day, according to the scriptures again, and he appeared uh, to Cephas and to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more people. Paul's movement here around what this gospel is that he's received is that Christ was buried and that Christ has been raised, that he died according to the scriptures for our sins, and that he's been buried and raised up. This is, I think, interesting because our gospel presentations, if you think through the ones that we most often use, whether it be the four spiritual laws or um, just a general sort of tent revival, two things are normally left off. We get that Christ died for our sins, but we often leave off according to the scriptures. We have this logic that says, you know, well, you can't be perfect and all this, but that's not actually contained within the Old Testament. What's contained with the Old Testament is that there is this blot on humanity that God is working through people to sort of distinguish, but it's not possible. And we keep turning back whenever God tries to repair it. And so what happens is God sends Jesus to repair it. This isn't necessarily a universal human condition, the way that we phrase it, this gospel. It comes from knowing these scriptures, knowing God's movement to fixing those things. And the second thing, if you think about many of the presentations we offer of the gospel, is it's Christ died for your sins, but we leave off the resurrection. We leave off that through his death, he was raised and reaffirmed to new life. That he was brought up from the grave, that he was brought up from death. And I don't think it's, it's odd that Paul begins 1 Corinthians 15 with this notion of what the gospel is, and it goes into this long sort of defense of what the resurrection is. You know, if you cut it off with just he died and is buried, it's not that great of news. But what the resurrection proclaims to us is that we're lifted up as he's lifted up out of the tomb and set again in the world. Now, this, this chapter, this one that we're moving through, is, is to proclaim the gospel. And so what I wanted to do is just spend a, a little bit of time talking about what it means to proclaim. As I said, we, we normally think of, of Christianity as sort of telling people. We teach. And there is, in the, in the email this week, I talked about how, for my sermons, I tried to think of proclamation more than teaching. One of the reasons is, and this was, was in the book, is that teaching, proclamation is more like a painting. It paints a world for you. It changes the way we function and live within this place and within this time. Proclamation works with atmosphere, let's say. Proclamation says something grand about the, what the world is. Teaching is like, stop doing this. You should pray more. You should invite people to church, which is a lot of these things... I assume you know, <laughs> um, which is why I don't take a lot of time to say them. If I were to stand up and give you a sermon about praying more, I, most of you, like, prayer is great. We should spend time in prayer. But one of the things that I always want to say is that before we get into, like, how we improve ourselves, which is really not our task, it's more God's task to improve us, that we want to get into to hearing what the good news is. We want to hear the proclamation again. 
Now that that's in the church, and we talk about how these sort of move through through three circles: one that's in the world, and one is in this. And one of the things that I want to say is how uncool proclamation is. How un, unrelevant proclamation is, because most of us would prefer to stand off at a distance and sort of shrug and see what somebody else is doing before we get engaged in the act of proclamation. Proclamation requires sort of actually believing something, actually having some, some sort of draw to this content. And most of us can live without being that drawn in to something. We live with this critical self-distance. And so there's this, there's this quote from the writer David Foster Wallace, and he's talking about what the next generation of writers might be like. See, the writers of, of sort of the time, if you haven't read many modern novels, I don't know if I would advise you to, but a lot of them sort of like push the boundaries of what they can say. They change how plot functions, they change the order of time, um, and they sort of just play with everything because uh, sacredness and actually saying something is no longer that important. They sort of can play with everything. And so he's talking about what the next generation of writers might be like. He says, the next writers, the next real literary rebels in this country might well emerge as some weird bunch of anti-rebels. This is for us as Christians. The next people who really proclaim aren't going to be like rebel rebels pushing the boundaries of what's appropriate and this is that. But they might be a weird group of anti-rebels, born Googlers who dare to, to somehow back away from ironic watching, who have the childish gall actually to endorse and to instantate principles, who treat of the plain old untrendy human who treat of plain old untrendy human troubles and emotions in this life with reverence and conviction. This, this relates to, I'm pausing because this relates to our notion of the Gospels, is we'd much rather address the exotic sometimes than the plain human troubles and emotions of regular life. Eschew self-consciousness and hit fatigue. These anti-rebels would be outdated, of course, before they even started, which I've joked is like the slogan for Defiance Church. Outdated before we even started. <laughs> <laughs> Dead on the page, too sincere, too sincere, clearly repressed, backward, quaint, naive, acronistic. Maybe that'll be the point. Maybe they'll, that's why they'll be the real rebels. Real rebels, as far as I can see, risk disapproval. The old postmodern insurgents risk the gasp and the squeal, shock, disgust, outrage, censorship, accusations of socialism, anarchism, nihilism. Today's risks are different. The new rebels might be artists willing to risk the lawn, the yawn, the rolled eyes, the cool smile, the nudge ridge, the parody of gifted art in this, the oh, how bummed. The risk of accusations of sentimentality, melodrama, over-credibility, of softness, of unwilling to be suckered by a world of lurkers and scares, who gaze and ridicule above imprisonment without law, who knows? For us to be those who proclaim in our lives is to have a risk that people will roll their eyes, to nudge their ribs. Oh, well, that, that's, that's easy. They're just the Christian in this workplace. Don't take it that seriously. But to proclaim requires integrity. It requires to be able to stand out and do those things. 
We may look backwards before we even start it. But it's through doing those things we move into the proclamation of the gospel. We can move into the proclaiming of something great and true. One of the things that, that, that speaks of this proclamation to me is the image. These images come from, I know, the pastor who put together the book, and these are in the book, not in color. But to me, this, this sort of speaking that says to speak of the gospel, and this is out in the world, this is not in a church, as you can tell, is to have a new world sort of born in your proclamation. To see the world as, it, as it's broken, to see the world as it is, and then to offer hope in the midst of that. To speak a new creation in there. To proclaim Jesus, and this is where it's hard, is to actually do something like this. Is to have a world painted before people that says, while the world is not as it should be, Christ came into that world. Christ suffered that world. Christ died in that world, and like everyone else, was buried in that world. But what we proclaim is that that's not the end of the story. That there's a resurrection born out of that suffering. And that resurrection made a people that we call the church. They're bearing the marks of that out into creation. And so we proclaim, and, and you can imagine this, is, this looks like you know, an early disciple. But to speak with that type of confidence in the world is to easily make yourself be made a mockery a fool. You know, John Wesley had this great phrase that people will always show up to see somebody set themselves on fire. <laughs> to have the fire of the gospel, of proclaiming the gospel in our bones is really what we're called to do. And yet we have so many ways in which we sort of build this critical distance from it. We don't function for it. The second part of this is to proclaim the gospel, the good news. Many of us know that gospel means good news, but the idea of what the gospel is, is is sort of complex in the scriptures. Mark, at the beginning of the gospel we just finished, says that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. And you read Mark and you get the idea that Jesus and his movement throughout the world is the gospel. If you read Paul at certain parts, the gospel becomes that Christ died for our sins. If you read other New Testament witnesses, the gospel sort of sort of changes and moves. And, and this is how one person recently summarized the gospel in, in 30 words, I think it is. Jesus is God with us, come to show us God's love. You see that in 1 John's, you'll see that in Romans. To save us from sin, you see that in this passage. To set up God's kingdom, that's clearly what Jesus is announcing in most of his gospels. The kingdom of God is at hand. To shut down religion, to shut down this need to sacrifice and to think efforts will get us to God so that we can share in God's life. Jesus is God among us. Come to show us God's love, save us from sin, set up God's kingdom, shut down religion so we can share in God's life. I'm not sure that, that that's all everything, but that helps summarize the expanse of what we are. Because if you were to read the New Testament and the Old Testament, you would hear that we are justified by God, that we are saved by God, that we are reconciled, that we are forgiven, that we are redeemed, we are adopted, we are made alive, and we now have the Spirit. 
the gospel has all these facets to it. And so we often sort of trade down the gospel, but actually it's this expansive thing of what God has done. Jesus in Luke 4 says that I've come to proclaim the gospel to you, which is good news for the impressed, sight to the blind, freedom for the prisoner. That's how Jesus defines the gospel in Luke 4. Now we have these options of like, and I don't, New Testament scholars will go to like, there's lots of gospels in the New Testament and they're all good. There's one gospel and we just expand its meaning greatly. And I think that, that I would take the side is that there's one gospel in the New Testament, and that is the name Jesus and what's announced and what comes with him as one who comes amongst us and invites us into sharing God's life. That would be my answer. But there's lots of different ways you could talk about gospel. And so what we say when we announce the gospel is we announce that God is doing something great in the world that has all these different avenues and ways we can look at it. Now, Don read that Ephesians reading for us, and that has that beautiful phrase that Christ is going to sum up all things. He's going to bring all things together. That if you were to add up everything in creation, if you were to reach the sum of everything, that that would be bound up in who Christ is. That means is that, is that all the goodness that we have is sort of bound up in Christ who comes to us. He's the sum of all that is in creation. And that's how you can see we get to an image like this, this proclamation of the new world. And so we talked the past two weeks about the, these three circles. This is where the sermon gets teachy application more than proclamation me. Um, you can tell I love this part also. Um, but this is, this is sort of the closed circle, and this is where we share the good news amongst ourselves on Sunday morning. This is where we remind ourselves that Christ has been, Christ died according to scriptures for the forgiveness of our sins. Christ was buried, and Christ raised also according to scriptures. That we come and hear this news, and, and I think, I hope, it builds an imprint on us so that when we go into the world, we know what it looks like. It's not that God isn't active outside these four walls, with the angles there more than that, um, but that God is, is, at church we learn to discern the shape of what gospel is. That the proclamation we hear here over and over again, and the proclamation we hear the most, I would say, hopefully in the scriptures, the word that's read, in communion, the word that's broken for us, or the visible sacrament. Now, what I do, and what all of us do when we preach adds to that, but I hope that we hear it first in those places where we break open the scriptures and read them together, and where we break bread and we enact the story of Jesus. That that builds a shape for us to sort of go into the world, training to see it out there. The dotted circle is always sort of representing our neighborhoods and our homes. This is where we speak the gospel to each other. One of the ways that this shows up, I think, most pertinently in our world and it's a shame that, it, that, that it's this, or it's great that it's this way. Shame, it's hard, is around um, human self-worth. You don't have to listen to people very long. And I mean, actually listen. That's, that's a hard task, but we should all be striving to get better at it. You don't have to listen to your friends, your family, your neighbors, anybody in your life very long to hear people cut themselves down, to hear people sort of lower their self-worth, lower who they are disregard their story, disregard what they bring to the table. 
And that here as Christians out in the world, we get to name worth to people. There's this great scene in, in Luke 15 where, where the person seeks after one lost sheep of 99, one lost coin of 10, and one son lost. But to seek after something that's lost is to say that it has worth. Son of man, come to seek and save the lost. To seek after something that's lost. If you lose something, if I lose a penny, I don't lose sleep, I just move on. But if I lose something that's valuable to me, we tear our houses apart. We search from top to bottom. One of the ways in which the gospel goes into the neighborhood, goes into our schools, goes into our workplaces, is because we get to say to people that there is value to you and who you are. God created you. God redeemed you. God has his spirit waiting for you to empower you and push you into a new life. It's not the only thing, but I think it's a great example of what we have. And then the last one is this sort of half circle. I think this is where the gospel becomes imprinted on us, that we aren't even just looking to say it, but it just goes with us as we move into the world. There's St. Francis, which I'm supposed to begin the sermon with. This always happens. It said, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. There's, there's obviously two things wrong with that. One is St. Francis didn't say it. Um, so the first and obvious thing wrong is St. Francis is saying, the second is that we narrate the world, look at the image of the woman speaking, is that to use words is to birth a new world. And so what we do, the gospel does to us, is it trains our language. It narrates a new place for us. This is, this is, this is just one, my last quote for the day. This comes from the theologian William Placker. He says, Christians today often think of their world in the vocabularies of contemporary politics or popular culture. But the Bible offers us an alternative. Those poor folks across town are not just welfare recipients or even fellow citizens, they're neighbors. That action wasn't just inappropriate behavior or even crime, it was sin. When we use such a vocabulary, we find ourselves thinking about the world in different ways. The way that we use our words and vocabulary really does change the way we think about the world. And sometimes, at least, we may find common ground with other Christians from whom we were divided when our, our only language was that of contemporary politics. To trust the Bible, to let it define our world and provide a language for thinking about the world, can transform our lives be able to narrate ourselves faithfully with scripture, with the good news of the gospel, is something that can begin to transform our relationships and our lives as we move through the world. To proclaim the gospel isn't just something that we do here, but it's something that goes with us. Francis is right, we should, we should live it always, but language matters, and the way that we can, we can think into that is the way in which we can bring life to the world. Let us pray. God, in your infinite wisdom, you've invited us into the task of sharing the gospel. Well, we might think better than inviting people like us, fragile and frail with short tempers, 
Your goal is to invite us in so that we may be transformed. And that through that transformation, you may become a sign to the world of the good news that you have not abandoned this place that doesn't seem as it should be. That you are birthing a new creation here. That new creation includes that you've died for our sins. That new creation includes that you have justified us. That you have adopted us and given us as children into your family, received us as children. That you've given us your spirit as a sign of that adoption. And that through our groaning and anguish, that spirit intercedes for us, offers words when we have no words, and brings us into the transformation of the world that you've invited us into. May we become agents of proclamation, both in our lives and in our words. Amen.